if you have a Bible, grab it and go to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to hang out in Genesis. If you're new to the Bible, uh, it's really easy to find. It's right when you open up the book. Once you get past like the foreword and the weird introduction stuff, Genesis chapter 1, that's where we're going to be. If if you're just joining us, here's what's happened. We've been in a series called Rooted, and what we're looking at is how Jesus actually uh, reshapes and transforms our whole life. And this is something that we're going to be talking about a lot in 2019, that you cannot uh, say that you follow Jesus as Savior and Lord and not have that profoundly affect the way that you live. So I, I get it. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're here and you've got questions about Christianity. Maybe you've been hurt by the church. Wherever you land, I'm just glad that you're with us today, and I think this is going to be a series, and especially what we're talking about in in the next few weeks, I think it's going to help you really reshape how you see following Jesus and what that does to every aspect of your life. Uh, So uh, that's what we're looking at, and today uh, we're going to be talking about work. Last week we talked about parenting. Next week, my good friend Josh Curry, the uh, founder of Frontline Church, is going to be with us. He's going to be preaching, so don't miss it. It's going to be really helpful. The week after, we're going to talk about Sabbath rest, but today we're talking about work. And when I say work, man, let me just go to the tension here. I know that we've got several families, several people, uh, several of you who are single who are without work right now. And this is a source of struggle for you. And our prayers are with you. And that's not just something we're saying. As a team, we are praying throughout the week for you. We love you and we are here to try to help you any way we can. And when I say work, I'm not just talking about those of you that get a paycheck. Some of you, like my wife, you're a stay-at-home mom and you're the hardest working people in our church. You deal with little crazy people all day long and don't get paid for it. And never at one time do your little crazy people turn to you and go, thank you for all the hard work that you do for me. They just don't do that. So I want to say, that counts as work. However you work, whether you uh, are a stay-at-home mom, you're a student in school, uh, maybe the domain of your vocation is your bedroom, and you're called to clean that, right, for your mom and dad, or whatever it is. Or maybe you work for oil and gas, or maybe you're a school teacher, or a construction worker, or whatever. This is a sermon for you any type of work that you do. How is it that we envision our work as a culture? Well, there's a lot of ways that we could answer that, but I think there's really two common approaches that our society has when it comes to work, and it's not just how we envision work, it's really how we envision ourselves as humans. Uh, The first way that we kind of think of ourselves is as productivity machines. You and I are just productivity widgets that are uh, busting out work. Think about the last time that you you met someone for the first time. Chances are you asked them two questions. Two questions are almost always the thing that we go to when you meet someone for the first time. Here's the first one. What's your name? Here's the second one. What is it that you, what is it that you do? Because your name and your vocation, your name and your job tell us a lot about you. In fact, in our culture, that's almost how we define you and assign value and dignity and worth is based on what you do. So imagine you're at a party and you meet someone, hey, what's your name and what do you do? And they say, I'm a doctor. Oh, great. Then you turn to the next person, what's your name and what is it that you do? And they say, I'm currently unemployed or I'm a stay-at-home mom or whatever. All of a sudden, there's implicit value being assigned to those people, like it or not. That's just the way that we, as a culture, treat your job. It's, you're a productivity machine, and your value is based on what you do and your accomplishments, and if you accomplish a lot, you have a lot of value. If you accomplish a little, you have a little value. That's how we see 
ourselves as human beings. And, and here's what's really broken about that. The thing that's broken about assigning value and worth and dignity to a person based on what they do, uh, being a productivity machine, what do you do when a machine breaks? You replace it, you throw it away, you get another one. And what happens is over time, if you step into retirement, maybe you're starting to have a crisis a little bit of what is it that I do now and what value do I bring to society because for so long it was wrapped up in what you do and you just feel like you're being thrown away and you no longer have any worth, any worth excuse me, as a human being. So that's one approach is we're productivity machines. We're just, you know, busting out work. Another way that we see ourselves is as pleasure machines, Right, So the, the goal of work is not work. The goal of work is to get money to buy the thing that I want. Maybe it's an experience. Maybe it's a weekend at the beach right? or a week because you really can't spend a weekend at the beach in Oklahoma. Right? You got to go big or, or not go at all. M- maybe it's a, 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 an eating out experience or whatever, a certain toy that you think is going to satisfy and fill you. Whatever it is, but work for you is the thing that you do to get the thing that you want. You don't really care about work. You just care about work to get what you want. Or maybe work is in the way of your pleasure. Like you can't enjoy life because of work. You can't actually have fun because of work. And so for many of us, work and our relationship with work gets distilled down to just this pleasure uh, machine. It's like I'm going to do all this work so that I can get the experience that I want. And this is also really broken but for different reasons. Wendell Berry, who is one of my favorite poets of all time, a great American author, he says, uh, there is nothing more absurd to give an example that is only apparently trivial than the millions who wish to live in luxury and idleness and yet be slender and good-looking. We have millions, too, whose livelihoods, amusements, and comforts are all destructive who nevertheless wish to live in a healthy environment. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, like, you know that feeling when you talk to your friends and like, man, all I want to do is just have a perpetual weekend. I want my whole life to be a weekend. I want to sit at home in my soft pants and binge watch Netflix and drink beer, right? And that's fine, like, if you can do that in moderation for a weekend. But if that's your life, then you're sitting in your soft pants and you're an alcoholic and, and you're probably 600 pounds, and you're really unhealthy, right? It's like, no, no, we want to have a perpetual weekend and a six-pack. Well, it doesn't work that way, right? It doesn't work that way that, that it's like being a, a kid and saying, I just want to stay up all night and eat candy and have a normal life too. Well, you can't do that. And often that's the way that we see work. It's like, well, I just, I want to work really, really hard so I can get all the stuff that I want so that I can live this imaginary lifestyle that actually doesn't exist. Here's the point our relationship to work is really busted up as a culture. It's really, really messed up. There are times where we overwork. There are times where we underwork. There are times where work is the thing that we look to to name us and fill us and define us and give us significance. And there are other times where we just are grinding it out because it's a necessary evil. We're just getting ourselves through the day so that we can get back to the pleasure that we really want. And then some of us even dream about what would it look like to to be rich and famous and not have to do a lot of work, but just enough to make a lot of money, and then I could just do the thing that I want to do and live the life that I dream about living, and it feels like you can't ever really get that life. That's only for rich and famous people, and our life is just going to be grinding it out day to day, stuck in this thing called work. It almost feels like we're a part of a system that we can't get out of. Uh, In the words of Dolly Parton in her most punk rock song of all time, 
She said, working nine to five. Yeah, they got you where they want you. There's a better life, and you dream about it, don't you? It's a rich man's game, no matter what they call it, and you spend your life putting money in his wallet. So now that I've accomplished my lifelong goal of quoting both Wendell Berry and Dolly Parton in one sermon, what's the point of all this? What are we doing with this conversation on work? Well, here's the argument that I want to make. The argument I want to make is that you can't answer the what is work for question until you pull back and zoom out and answer the what are people for question. That's the deeper, more essential question. If we try to answer the what is work for question without answering the what is people for question, then we're going to be hazy and confused at best on what we're even doing with work. We actually have to go to the source and ask, what is the meaning of life before we can ever get to the what is meaning of work? So to answer that question, I want to take you to Genesis chapter 1. And partly why I'm a follower of Jesus, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is because I think Christianity offers the most sane, plausible, beautiful answer to this question that you'll ever find in any other religion or any other thought belief out there. So Genesis chapter 1, if you're with me, go to verse 26. What are people for? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them, look at this, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. When you read man, just read humanity. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now look at this, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is a bizarre picture of what it is to be human. We'll we'll keep unpacking that, but fast forward. Go to chapter two and look at verse five. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And then look at this really intriguing line. And there was no man to work the ground. And and a mist was going up from the land, and it was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and that man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, And there he put the man whom he had formed. Now fast forward a little bit. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden. Why? To work it and to keep it. This blows up the misconception that most of us, whether you grew up in church or not, most of us had of what life must have been like before sin entered the world. If you're anything like me, what I thought of our life before sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, life was a perpetual vacation. It looked like an extended commercial for a sandals resort, right? And and Adam and Eve holding hands, just running through the beach, and then finally sitting down to like feed each other grapes. And I was like, man, how do I get back to that? That sounds amazing. And, and, and that's really why Jesus came and he died and he rose again to get us back to that eternal vacation called life pre-sin. That's what I thought. It's like, yeah, you wake up every day and what are we gonna do today? Sip mimosas and sit in the hammock. Great. What about tomorrow? Same thing. And then that was it. But when you actually study Genesis chapter one and chapter two, we get this answer. What are people for? 
We are created as the image of God. And here's what that means. You and I are supposed to have a right relationship with him. And out, uh, out of the overflow of that relationship, we are to represent and reflect God in the world. Think about that. God creates all things. He plants a garden. He cultivates all things. But he doesn't just like wave a wand and then take care of everything on his own. He creates human beings who are underneath his authority to actually represent God to the world. Imagine yourself as a human. Hi, I'm a human. I'm representing Yahweh, the creator God, to you. And they reflect God in the world. So, so here's what's so bizarre. You and I were actually created for work. And not just any work, not just grinding it out work, but work that is cultivating and beautiful and overseeing this good creation that God had made and multiplying that out. See, the original intention was for Adam and Eve to be in the garden and actually the space where the presence of God was dwelling and humanity was dwelling. The idea was that they would actually take this garden and cultivate it in such a way that it would spread over the whole earth. So God creates humans to oversee the earth. No pressure. It's just all on you to oversee. Here you go. And this is what theologians throughout history have called the cultural mandate. There's a great book by Richard Pratt called Design for Dignity, and here's how he defines the cultural mandate. Just think about this. He said, God ordained humanity to be the primary instrument by which his kingship will be realized on earth. The great king has summoned each of us into his throne room. Imagine this. Take this portion of my, of my kingdom, he says. I am making you a steward over your office and your workbench and your kitchen stove. Put your heart into mastering this part of my world. Get it in order. Unearth its treasures. Do all you can with it. Then everyone will see what a glorious king I am. That's why we get up every morning and go to work. We don't labor simply to survive. Insects do that. Our work is an honor, a privileged commission from our great king. God has given each one of us a portion of his kingdom to explore and to develop to its fullness. Friends, you were created for work. Work was not a part of the fall, right? Like it actually existed before sin entered the world. God created you for work. He said, here, take some creativity and, and take some brilliance and, and take some hard manual labor and take this earth and make something out of it. Make something beautiful. It's no surprise then that as you read through scripture, the story starts in a garden and it actually ends with a city, a heavenly city coming down out of heaven on the earth. And that's because God's vision for humanity isn't for us just to lounge around in hammocks all day long. It's to, to take this good earth that he had made and use it for, our, for his, his purposes to reflect God in the world and to make a city out of it, to make something out of it, to make culture and to, to with, with art and with cuisine and with creativity, just make something beautiful in the name of God. That's why he made us. So this is why it's a tragedy if you take what we're doing in this one hour on a Sunday and you divide it up and divorce it from the 167 hours in your week. What we're doing today is sacred. It's beautiful. As we, a few minutes ago, gathered to sing and we gathered to confess our sin as we do every week and to be reminded of the assurance, Sundays are a sacred day. And yet, as you get in your car tomorrow morning and you drive to work you are actually doing something that is not secular. If it's done for Jesus, you're driving to your job and you're do doing something that is as sacred as what you're doing in this very moment.
You were created to be creative, to work hard, to make something of this world. Nancy Piercy says this. She says, the ideal human existence is not eternal leisure or an endless vacation. Do we just need to pause there and like have a pity party together for a minute? That that's like not the vision that God had for humanity, right? Can you embrace that? It wasn't eternal leisure or an endless vacation. Listen to this. It wasn't even a monastic retreat into prayer and meditation, but creative effort expended for the glory of God and the benefit of others. Our calling is not just to go to heaven, but also to cultivate the earth. Not just to save souls, but also to serve God through our work. For God himself is engaged not only in the work of salvation, but also in the work of preserving and developing his creation. When we obey the cultural mandate, we participate in the work of God himself. When you work hard for the glory of God, you're imaging God in the world, who is a creator, a gardener, and a cultivator. You're being like God, and that's the whole point. Now, let's just pause there for a minute. If that's all true, and I believe that it is, that work is a gift, it's a privilege, it was, it's really a core part of why we were created. If that's all true, can I just bluntly ask, why does work suck so much? Right? Do you feel that? Like, you're reading this and you're going, yeah, 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 but my experience is not like that. It's pretty awful. I hate my job. I hate my boss. I hate my coworkers. I, like, the thought of Mondays, for some of you, your stress level's already higher. Like, your heart's beating faster. You're just like, I don't want to. You're coming to, you feel the end of the weekend encroaching upon you. Why does work suck so much? Well, here's the second thing I want you to see. It's the brokenness of work. See, the story doesn't stop in chapter two. It doesn't stop with us just fulfilling our cultural mandate. Once you get to chapter three, what you realize is that Adam and Eve, in a tragedy, in an act of sheer rebellion, instead of just eating from the tree of life, they actually reached out and chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And listen, God is not mad about them taking fruit off of some random tree. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that they chose to define their own reality, to be their own king, to define good and evil for themselves, and instead of being underneath the authority of this good king, they pushed him out of the picture and established themselves and their reign and rule as ultimate. They rejected God. And when that happened, we call this the fall, when the fall happened, it disordered every part of our lives. So now our relationship to our creator is busted up and fractured. And our relationship to each other is fractured. If you don't believe this, just watch the news, right? Or don't, because it's very depressing. And then now, not, not just our relationship with God and relationship with each other, but even our relationship to creation itself and work itself is now profoundly broken. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 3. Look at verse 17. Genesis 3 verse 17. This is a part of God explaining what happens when you, in a disordered way, make yourself the king and push him out of the picture. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Instead of us worshiping God and cultivating creation, what we chose to do was to reject God and worship creation. 
And now this has a profound effect on the way that we see work. Now work itself is hard. It's like unnecessarily hard. It produces thorns and thistles. Do you feel this? The curse is really, really tough. It's like so frustrating, isn't it, that you're going to go to work tomorrow and that's not really going to have a dramatic impact on life in any sort of way. If you're a doctor, you're going to go to work, you're going to do some surgeries, you're going to give people some medicine, and then Tuesday you're going to do the same thing. And then Wednesday, and then Thursday, and then Friday. If you're a construction worker, there's always more to build, right? Some of you forgot, have forgotten uh, because it's like negative five degrees outside, but there's this thing called summer. Do you remember summer? It's a beautiful season that comes eventually. I promise it'll happen. And what happens in summer is our grass grows. It's, it's like this profound thing where your grass actually turns green, not brown, and it grows. Do you remember this? Yeah, some of you. And then you'll mow your lawn, and it'll look amazing for two days. And then you'll have to mow again. And our work is never done. And it's hard. Everything's harder than it should be. And it's frustrating. Why? Because work is broken. Our lives are broken, and it's actually had an effect on work. And here's what happens as a result. We have one of two responses that often take place as our reactions to the curse. There are really two reactions that happen. Here's the first one. We just overwork. Uh, the 40-hour work week is a thing of the past. 86% of Americans work over 45 hours a week. In Japan, there's a word called uh, kuroshi, and kuroshi literally means death by overwork. It means that you work so hard that you just, due to stress or heart failure or whatever, you drop dead. I think the first case was in 1957, and they've had a significant rise in Kiroshi since then, and you can even find newspaper articles in Japan saying, how do we lower Kiroshi? How do we get rid of Kiroshi? But here's what's so bizarre. This is in Japan, right? Yet statistically, Americans work more hours than anyone else in the world. 137 hours more per year than the Japanese. 260 more hours per year than the British, and no surprise to anybody, 499 more hours per year than the French, right? Which I don't even know if that counts. But here's what happens. We, 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 take, we, we take work and, and we look to it for significance and identity and I've got to make something out of this for my life and I've got to secure this eternal vacation that I'm craving and we overwork. Unhealthy relationship. The other side of it is we underwork. We underwork. According to a recently released uh, a poll from Gallup, they're a polling uh, company, and they did, a, they did some research. Only 13% of employees are, quote, engaged in their jobs or emotionally invested in their work and focused on helping their organizations improve. If you're a CEO in the room, can you believe that? Maybe you're like, well, I'm surprised it's even 13%, right? 13% are engaged. Listen to this, 63% are not engaged or simply unmotivated and unlikely to exert extra effort. 24% are actively disengaged or truly unhappy and unproductive. Some of you are like, I work with that person. They're in a cubicle next to me. They get paid to check Facebook. It's a travesty. Like, you know what I'm talking about. And here's what's crazy. This is just in our culture. Work is a necessary evil to us, and it's a daily grind, and it's like, how do I just show up and get what I have to get done so that I can get back home and live my life again? We underwork. Why? Because it's hard. 
and it's broken, and the curse has affected us, and so now we have this lazy and disengaged, apathetic attitude towards our work, and we dream about, even in the church, this is one of the things that plagues Christians more than anything. We dream about this utopian job out there that we really will love, and it's always going to be fun, and it's always going to make us happy, and we're going to get paid a ton of money to do it, and it doesn't exist. And so we just kind of feel like maybe I landed in the wrong job or maybe I haven't truly found my calling or maybe, and in the process we do shoddy, immature work because our relationship to work is broken. Or if you're like me, sometimes you vacillate weirdly between those two things. You overwork and then you just underwork. And overwork and then underwork. So what do we do about this? Well, this is why I think there's so much hope in Christianity, specifically in what Jesus came to do for us. So here's the third thing I want you to see is the redemption of work. Our life would have continued along that trajectory of unhealthy amounts of overwork and or unhealthy amounts of underwork had Jesus not stepped in to redeem all things. Uh, You don't need to turn here, but in Galatians 3, I want to read this to you. This has significance for how we approach work. Here's what it says. The Apostle Paul in his uh, letter to the Galatians writing against legalism, he says this. He says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Here's the big idea that Jesus, one of the things that he was doing when he came into this world is he came, as Scripture is going to call him in the New Testament, the image of God. That Jesus is the image of the Father. In other words, he is the ultimate perfect human who is modeling for us how to do this thing called life. He is the perfect human. He never sinned. He, he always did hard work in an appropriate way, glorifying his Father in heaven. And then this Jesus, after living a perfect life, he goes to a cross. He absorbs the curse of our sin. And that's not just the individual actions of sin that we have done, but it's also the effect of sin on our world and the effect of the curse on our work. Jesus died to absorb that curse so that in his death and in his resurrection, we might not only receive forgiveness for our sins, but blessing from God. And one day, that curse that God had placed on the earth God is lifting that curse slowly but surely it's happening now and one day he's going to lift it fully and you and I will be able to, to, to spend our lives on this earth in a new heavens and a new earth with Jesus doing our work in the way that God intended for us to do it but in the meantime the life of Jesus has so much to offer us with how we actually consider our own life and our own work just consider this reality that Jesus' life did not start the three years before he died on a cross. It's not like the, the, the gospel start and then Jesus opened his mouth and started to teach. No, they start with his birth. And did you know that Jesus lived 30 years before he did any sort of quote-unquote ministry, before he taught a sermon, before he healed a sick person, before he did anything of, of what we might call ministry value? You know what he did in the meantime? He built tables and he was a carpenter and he worked with his hands and he worked with wood. Did you know that Jesus didn't waste 30 years of his life? That he actually was a hard-working human being who also was God, but he didn't do shoddy work? He taught us how to live in what often feels like mundane life, being a hard worker. Dorothy Sayers, in her book, Why Work, she says, No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Nor if they did, could anyone believe that they were made with 
by the same hand that made heaven and earth. See, Jesus taught us how to value our work as a gift from God, as a means by which we can image God in the world. We can represent God. We can reflect God through what we do, whether we're bankers, teachers, stay-at-home moms, students. You're just literally, your only job is obeying mom and dad to clean your bedroom once a week when they ask you. Whatever it is that you do for your job, CEO, doctor, doesn't matter, lawyer, you can image and reflect God because what you do Monday through Saturday is as sacred and as important as what you're doing in this moment. It's a big deal. So Jesus, he begins to change the way that we see work. And in the New Testament, we have some hints as to how uh, following Jesus and putting our, our life underneath his lordship actually changes the way we approach work. And, and I'll be brief and try to, try to wind us down here. So in Colossians, you don't need to turn here, but two verses stand out that if you would grab a hold of these would radically change the way you approach your job. Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Imagine if I said to you, I'm going to do my whole job in the name of Hillary, my wife. What that means is I'm doing it for her honor and I'm doing it to, to make much of her and I'm dedicating all of it for her. Do everything, whatever it is that you do, in the name of the Lord Jesus. You're a plumber, in the name of the Lord Jesus. You work with uh, AV stuff, in the name of the Lord Jesus, do that. You're a technician, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then look at this in Colossians 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, I hate my job, it doesn't matter. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. See, there's the job that you do, and then there's the job that you really do. <laughs> Whatever you do, what you really do is you work for Jesus. He's your real boss He's the one that you report to. Can you just imagine if you caught this vision for your job? How would it change the way that you approached your work? Well, think about this. Martin Luther, he, he says this, and I found this so helpful. He says, what would you do if Christ himself with all the angels were visibly to descend and command you in your home to sweep your house and wash the pans and kettles? I'm gonna start calling them pans and kettles again. I like that. How happy you would feel and would not know how to act for joy, not for the work's sake, but that you knew that thereby you were serving him who is greater than heaven and earth. What you do in your house is worth as much as if you did it up in heaven for our Lord God. We should accustom ourselves to think of our position and work as sacred and well-pleasing to God, not on account of the position and work, but on account of the word and faith from which the obedience and the work flow. So you can turn your job into a way to worship and make much of Jesus because you report to him. He's your boss. He's the one that assigned you your current job. Embrace that. Embrace that. Real quickly, if you just do a scan of the New Testament, there's so many different handles for how to take the reality of Christianity and plug and play into your life so that you can turn your job into an act of service and worship and glorifying Jesus. Let me just give you a few of them. Uh, he's glorified when we put our whole selves into work with a, view of, uh, with a view toward pleasing God and not men. God is glorified when we're honest, even when it, hurts, when it hurts us or prevents us from getting ahead. God's glorified when we honor our superiors and submit to their authority. 
He's glorified when we treat our work associates with kindness and respect. He's glorified when we expose fraud or dishonesty or unethical behavior. He's glorified when we approach our work prayerfully. He's glorified when we avoid complaining or grumbling, even in less than ideal work. I don't anticipate a lot of amens on that one. Uh, He's glorified when we refuse to make work and money our idols. God's glorified when we plan diligently for the future. He's glorified when we live simply and give generously. He's glorified when we trust him to provide today what we need for today. And finally, he's glorified when we rest from work. So God is glorified, worshiped, he's served by the way that we work. It's deeply connected to what it is to be a Christian. So let me close. Let me just give you three things, three hopes that I have for you as we think about what it means to have a life rooted in Jesus, not just theologically or mentally, but practically and functionally where we are really following Jesus and how that changes our work. Three things. Number one, I want you to work hard. I want you to work hard. Remember who your boss is. Jesus is the one that you work for and he assigned you your current job. Work for him. It's a beautiful thing to have a job where you get to work for Jesus. So be on time. Give it all that you have. Be the best in your particular field that you can be. Be creative. Put in more effort than your boss would ever expect. There should never be someone that isn't a follower of Jesus that could outwork you. Be more creative, more diligent, more hardworking because they're not even working for Jesus. You are working for Jesus. That should radically change the way you see it. Any uh, Chef's Table fans? Chef's Table, man, the rest of you need to repent of your sins and go watch Chef's Table on Netflix. It's amazing. Um, But what I love about it is the way that they throw their life into work. Now, they do it in unhealthy ways, and they're extreme, and they go too far, and they neglect their families. But what what would it look like in an appropriate way to bring creativity to your job, to, to infuse it with this reality that I'm doing this for Jesus. This is why he made me, to represent and image him in the world. It's a big deal. Second thing, don't expect work to be easy. Don't expect work to be easy. My good friend Bob Thune says, don't expect life at work to be peachy. We all know the way too happy Christians who go to work thinking that since they love Jesus, everything is gonna work out. It's not. You might miss your quota. You might lose a client. You might get fired. You might have conflict with your boss or your coworkers. These things don't mean that Jesus doesn't love you or that God is punishing you. Rather, they are inevitable results of living in a fallen world. Remember, thorns and thistles. Work is cursed. Work is affected by the fall. Work doesn't always work the way it should. So have a massively God-sized view of the holiness of work, creation, but be realistic about the fall too. Jesus hasn't come back yet. And then the last thing, and I won't spend hardly any time on this at all, but practice the Sabbath. The rhythm that God created was to work six days and rest one. In two weeks, I'm gonna preach an entire sermon on the the gift of Sabbath. It is one of the most amazing commands. It's like God commanding you, I want you to celebrate Christmas morning, but every week. That's how amazing the Sabbath is. We're gonna talk about it in two weeks. Don't overwork. Have a right relationship with Jesus that can affect the way that you approach work enough to work hard six days and rest in one.